everyone. Welcome back to The Goods, a film podcast. This is the 116th episode. This is Dan and I have Brian here with me. We just recorded a little talk on Titanic, which we saw in theaters together. You could almost call it a date night, except my wife was also there. So I don't know. Third wheeling. Yeah, that was fun. But now on to the proper back on track, as as we've been saying, to the, the proper business of the day. And that is a train movie, train talk. I went back to 1926. That makes this one of our, our oldest movies ever. Uh, and in fact, we're going to be talking about some, a couple things that are even older than that. But the, the headline feature here is The General, directed by Buster Keaton, 1926. So listeners, you might have been wait, waiting for this one. I know a couple of you brought it up in, oh, what will they talk about in train month? That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, this is often on short list of uh, train themed movies that people think about and people remember. Brian, I want to revisit. We're going to talk about three movies today. Do any of them take the mantle for the ultimate train movie? Thus far, I have Brief Encounter as my ultimate train movie. I'm not sure if you've uh, weighed in on that that uh, declaration yet, but I think I'm going to wait to judge until the end of the month. Yeah, yeah. I'm for me, it's title belt. Yeah, certainly the ones that we've watched so far have been extremely trainy. Yeah. The other two movies we're going to talk about are the 1896 film. In English, it's typically translated to the arrival of a train at La. How do you say it, Brian? La Cita station. I've heard La Cita. La Cita station in French. Just imagine Gavin strangling me right now. I'm going to try this, though. La arrivée du train en gare de la Cita. Something like that. This is by the Lumiere brothers. That's 1896. The other thing we're going to talk about is The Great Train Robbery, which was a 1903 film directed by Edwin S. Porter. So, Brian, trains, choo-choo. Indeed. I've seen both of these before. Arrival of a Train and Great Train Robbery. Certainly trainy, certainly important in the early moments of cinema. And I think you're going to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. And had you seen The General before this week? This was my first time watching The General. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, or the same train as you. I've seen the, the two older films first, and this is my first time seeing The General. As our train topic of the week, Brian, I, I went to the website timetoast.com, and they had generated a very helpful timeline of train history. So I pulled out a couple of dates just to... Think about what what was happening with trains different times. We go through this real quick. 1603, the first wagonway was built in England. A wagonway is a train-like rail system, but instead of being powered by an engine, it's powered by horses. So I think it's kind of like just pulling a wagon, but like you have a designated rail for it or something like that. That doesn't seem very useful, but maybe. I don't know. Maybe it runs smoother. Like instead of having to maintain a whole road or something, sure. just, you got one, especially if you're going back and forth between a specific thing. Um, so that was 1603. Um, 171 years later, 1774, the first steam engine was built. Now, this wasn't attached to a train, but it was the first steam engine ever. And it was made by James Watt, who is the n- namesake of the unit. What is the watt? Is that power or current? I, I believe it's power, or is power a joule? Is watt work? I think a watt is power, like a kilowatt. Amps is current, so I don't think it's amp. Right. Or I don't think it's current, rather. That's 1774. Now, about 30 years later, 1803, the first public railway was built in London, and it was about 14 kilometers long. So... Uh, that's something like 10 miles, I don't know, but right. the first first uh, railway. And then just a year later, the first locomotive steam engine ever was built also in England in, in Leeds. And then in 1812, so just a few years after that, the first ever commercial passenger train service opened. And then uh, in 1825, a, f- a very famous train. So, so this is 13 years after the first ever passenger train service. A train called the Locomotion One. The locomotion number one 
which was a really powerful steam engine. So the breakthrough here was that it could pull a lot of weight. It was an extremely powerful and sturdy engine. And this is like still one of the most famous trains that's like preserved in some museum somewhere. You can go find it. That's the locomotion number one from 1825. Then we start getting to a slightly more modern technology. In 1863, London was building underground railroads. And here that's literal underground railroads, not like the metaphorical one we talk about in United States Civil War history. 1872, there was a an, the automatic air brake was invented, and this was important because it made made stopping steam engines a lot easier, which basically made it so that you could have more frequent stops, which of course paved the way for things like commuter trains and that along with the underground railroads in 18, 1863, you can get to subways and stuff. And then the last one I have here is almost 100 years after that, 1964, the first bullet train ever used commercially was released in Japan. Shout out my brother Will in Japan right now. I don't know if he's taking a bullet train. Let's have, we can ask him that. Yeah, that was a topic of discussion last time. Yeah. I feel like he probably has. I know he's taking train to and from Tokyo. I don't know if that's the bullet train or whatever. Have you ever seen Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter? No. Well, in that, there's, I forget what it is, some valuable object that they're going to ship, and they're going to send it by railroad, and there's this posse of evil Confederate vampires who are conspiring <laughs> against Lincoln, and they, like, you know, they corner the train, and they, like, take the train, and everybody's like, oh, no, Lincoln, we're we're done for, they got the thing, and he's like, I didn't send it by a real railroad. I sent it by the underground railroad. And there are like, you know, slaves, fugitives, sneaking it behind enemy lines. Good twist. Yeah, I gotta, do I gotta see that? Maybe I do. I don't know. I think I might have even seen that one in 3D. And I've definitely got the Blu-ray of it. I feel like that one's in line with Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, where you have... Even though that one's not like a right. re reworking of a public domain work, it's like taking the the older era and injecting it with modern supernatural trends. Yeah, it was part of that same movement, same time period. But you know what? I actually liked that it covered a wider stretch of Lincoln's life than the Spielberg one did, which was right around the same time. Uh, that one is just a couple months in 1865, but... Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter had, like, key moments from his whole life. It had, like, the Lincoln-Douglas debates and, and all kinds of things. Huh. It, like, the courtship of Mary Todd. Interesting. My five-year-old daughter in kindergarten has been learning about Abraham Lincoln in honor of President's Day. We're recording this a day after President's Day. But the way she frames it is funny sometimes. Like, we had a $5 bill we got for uh, the Lunar New Year. Uh, my my sister-in-law is Chinese. And her parents gave my daughter's $5 bill because that's like a thing you do. You give kids money during the Lunar New Year. And they pulled it out. And my daughter, my five-year-old, she said, oh, that's the 16th president. It's like just such a funny way to put it. And she she knew a couple of facts about him. She's a good sponge for factoids, which means I got to be careful in what I say when she's around. <laughs> nice. Um, all right, so let's talk about our three movies here. First, Arrival of a Train. I'm just going to call it Arrival of a Train. So, uh, you know, not raise the rage meter on Gavin, our French listener who frequently comments on our bad pronunciation and or lack of geopolitical knowledge when we... Yeah, are... our resident polyglot. Exactly. So Arrival of a Train, as I mentioned, made by the Lumiere brothers. So the, the type of movies they made are kind of the first format of film. Brian, you, you could probably be even telling me telling us better than than what I have here because you're in the midst of a film history course, isn't that right? Right. And it's the first one in a while, but I've taken many. Yeah. And it's fresh now. And yeah, so there was the kinetoscope was like the very first. And of course, as with many technologies emerging around this era, Edison has got his hand in it. 
And the kinetoscope, the difference was that it was like wound the film around sprockets inside a box and there was like a viewmaster thing on top of the box and you stepped up and you put your face there and like turned a crank and they might have had some electrical ones that would play the movie, but only one person could see it at a time. And it was like the technology that recorded the movie and the technology that played it back was different. It was like two separate things. But then the Lumieres kind of made two innovations where like the thing could basically record and play back and you could project for an audience, multiple people at once. Right. So the, they, the movies they made were about one minute or less and they are now called actualities. They're like single shot, essentially documentaries. You just plop a camera down and capture something in motion. Yeah. It's like a home video. Right. This one is 47 seconds long. Although I know with silent films, the length is up for debate because it took a while for like really standard running frames per second because you could crank it at different speeds, but like have the frames show. Right. Yeah, there was like kind of a standard of about 18 frames a second, which is why old, really old movies, you know, they look jerky. They look a little fast Mm -hmm. or it's, you know, choppy like a stop motion film or something. And then it wasn't until sync sound that it really had to standardize because you needed things to be basically played back at the same rate that it was recorded. So that was the impetus to really have a standard frames per second rate. Like I know even late silence, there's still debate about, oh, should you watch it at 20? Should you watch it at 18, 24? What's the best one to watch it at? And I'm not quite geeky enough in my film knowledge to have opinions on that but it was always interesting to see different cases for why you might do this or that right and as we said when we were talking titanic like they still haven't reached a consensus that's true yeah hfr people are still messing with frame rate so here's the recap of arrival of a train as as it even requires one there's a crowd including workers as well as people who are either waiting to board or meet riders they're waiting for the train to come It's kind of right along the tracks. We see the train arriving. It comes from center right on the horizon. That's about halfway up the screen. It comes down to the left at about 30 degrees from the horizon. And then the train comes to a stop. The doors open. Masses of people come out. This is a thing with the Lumiere. like I always notice there's a point in there where there's like a lot of stuff happening at once. Chaos here or there. And then people exit the train. People get on. And it's, I think it's interesting, a couple things. One, there's, you seem to have different ages, different, you have men and women, you have people across the class spectra just based on how fancy they're dressed. Also, everyone, like 90% of the people are wearing hats. It's like, we don't see that too often when you're outside, people just wearing hats. I don't know. It's like a sign of the times or something. Yeah, I've heard various people killed the hat. I've heard <laughs> President Kennedy killed the hat. So the Lumieres, uh, there's like the date that is often regarded as the birth of cinema. So you were saying how they could like project the movies. So December 28th, 1895 was when they first did their public screening of films. They showed 10 films. This was not one of them, although it is often thought of as like the first film or one of the first films. It actually came out about a month later. So this wasn't one of the batch of the first 10. But, you know, obviously very shortly thereafter. So we've mentioned the the podcast and the website Alternate Ending, previously known as Antagony and Ecstasy. Here's what their critic uh, Tim Brayton wrote on the 115th anniversary. So at this point, that's 13 years ago, because 115 years after 1895 would have been 2010. But here's what he wrote. On December 28th, 1895, brothers Auguste and Louis Lumiere presented a screening of 10 films at La Salon Indienne du Grand Café in Paris. This was one of the key events in the history of the motion picture, not the first time that an audience had paid to see a film. As Brian said, Edison's kinetoscope had already become quite popular, and not the first time that a movie had been projected on a screen in front of an audience, for the earliest versions of motion photography were all limited to one viewer at a time. It was, however, on that winter day 115 years ago that the Lumiere's And their short program invented the idea of the cinema, a room where strangers would all gather together to sit in the dark and pay to watch movies together. 
It was the ideal culmination to a year in which the art of the motion picture advanced more than it ever would in any subsequent 12 month span, which I thought was a nice summation of it. Yeah. I, in the first episode of this documentary that this whole film history class I'm taking right now is based around the narrator talks about how their name is Lumiere and like how perfect that is Mm -hmm. because it means light. And obviously you need light to record film to project film. But he also talked about like the connection of that to the idea of the enlightenment, uh, which was very big in like the French revolution, you know, it was the driving force behind Egalité, Liberté, Fraternité, and that France, like France loves film, cinema so much because at least according to this narrator, it's like tied into the ethos of being at the cutting edge academically and like bringing this light of academia to the world. Wow. That's interesting. I never thought about it from that angle. Yeah. Cause that is true. Uh, it's like, it's a big part of the culture, the, the birthing of this grand new idea. And I'm actually going to Paris in April. Uh, I'll be traveling there and the cafe where this this one famous screening occurred is either shut down, destroyed, used for some other purpose now. I don't know exactly, but there is a famous cinema museum where they have a lot of early cinema artifacts. And they also have a dedicated Melies uh, exhibit there. So I'm planning to go to that over there. That's pretty cool. You got to get some pictures. Yeah. So that should be fun. One famous thing about this movie is uh, there's there's an anecdote that is almost certainly apocryphal, but I will go ahead and read it as summarized on Wikipedia. The film is associated with a well-known rumor in the world of cinema. The story goes that when the film was first shown, the audience was so overwhelmed by the moving image of a life-size train coming directly at them that people screamed and ran to the back of the room. Helmuth Karasek in the German magazine Der Spiegel wrote that the film had a particularly lasting impact. Yes, it caused fear, terror, even panic. However, some have doubted the veracity of this incident, such as film scholar and historian Martin Leuperdinger in his essay Lumiere's Arrival of the Train Cinema's Founding Myth. But I I like that image, like people so subsumed in the visceral experience of cinema that they're, oh my God, the train's coming. They're like diving out of the seats. I was actually thinking of Titanic. I know we just talked about it and just watched it, but like a lot of stuff had me thinking about it. Like the visceral experience of seeing a train driving is like very much connected to, I don't know, the sheer power of like a ship crashing and sinking. And the spectacle of it is like a big appeal, just like, They say that, you know, Titanic was one of the last great physical spectacle movies, you know? Right. Well, also, you were talking about people of different classes getting on the train. That's true, too. Yeah. And that's very Titanic-y. One last thing on on arrival of a train. Here's a less famous anecdote, but I find this maybe even more fascinating than the other one. Uh, Here again, I'll just quote Wikipedia because they have a good summary of it. What most film histories leave out is that the Lumiere brothers were trying to achieve a 3D image even prior to this first ever public exhibition of motion pictures. Louis Lumiere eventually reshot La Arrive d'un Train with a stereoscopic film camera and exhibited it along with a series of other 3D shorts at a 1934 meeting of the French Academy of Science. Given the contradictory accounts that plague early cinema and pre-cinema accounts, It is plausible that the early cinema historians conflated the audience reactions at these separate screenings of La Arrive d'un Train. So, Brian, this was like one of the first movies then to get a 3D re-release, just like Titanic. That's right. That's awesome. I got to get the Blu-ray of this one. Yeah. Uh, Any other thoughts on Lumiere's or Arrival of a Train? I'll just say it is cool how early they had 3D. Uh, have you ever messed around with like a stereopticon? No. What's that? So it was this way to view 3D images at home and you'd get little cards that had two 
images, a pair taken from slightly different perspectives, and then you'd slip the little card into like a pair of opera glasses, and you'd see a 3D scene. And it's it's pretty cool. It's essentially identical to what a Viewmaster is. So if you played with a Viewmaster, you've, mm. you've played with a Stereopticon. Okay. That's cool, yeah. That has existed, yeah, like since photography has existed, basically. Very cool. So continuing our exploration of early train cinema. And by the way, I just wanted to chime in. I said this last week when we were kind of introducing it. I probably should have more explicitly said it here. Very cool and very fascinating to me that so much of early cinema is wrapped up in trains. And I think that's not a coincidence. I mean, first of all, it was the main method of transport at the time, you know, so if you're stories need people to go from point A to point B and if trains were your transportation, that kind of makes sense. I also just think that the train is like perfect in size and dimensions and angles to be very cinematic. Like you can film on top of a train with modern trains. You can film inside a train. You can capture a train speeding through at a very pleasing geometric angle. You know, I, I just think they're cinematic and I, I, I find it compelling that, They've been there since the dawn of cinema. But the the other key early train film I wanted to talk about is The Great Train Robbery, 1903, an American film by Edwin S. Porter. So you mentioned Edison and how he kind of had his hands in all sorts of technology innovations at the time. Porter was an employee of Edison. And he's one of those, there's like a handful of early cinema people that you hear about who like, they don't have one big thing they did attributed to them, but they like did a whole bunch of different things. I mean, it was like everybody was fiddling and improving and getting building a process and improving the technology and like making it more streamlined, paving the way for the studio system in the 30s, 40s, whatever. So everybody agrees. All these history books agree that, that I've read that Edwin S. Porter is an important fella, although they don't point to one single thing that he did necessarily, but this is definitely his most famous film. Yep. He came up in this film history documentary we've been watching. It said he introduced the phantom ride, which is where you put your camera on a moving vehicle, mm. which of course was a train. Yeah. Yeah. He made over 250 films. Uh, those early movie makers, like Melies made something like a thousand films, like something outrageous with 150 of them surviving. I guess if your films are one minute each and you basically just plop down a camera, like it's understandable that you would have that many. It still kind of blows my mind that, you know, he made over 250 films, Brian. That's a whole lot. Yeah, that's awesome. Especially with Melies doing all the special effects and Edwin Porter got inventive with editing and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, continuity editing was developing but I mean, think about like a YouTuber, a vlogger who does one every single day. It, you know, it match, it mounts up mm, over time. That's a good point. That's a really good, I think, analogy, because just like you can essentially make a YouTube video in a day, you know, you film it, you edit it, you get it ready for release, you put it online. You maybe couldn't do all that in a day with a film, but like the process, you film something, then you got to edit it, package it, all that, like the filming itself was just a minute or maybe you did a bunch of takes and you did maybe you did multiple films at once. I don't know, but it definitely I think is more in line with something like that than with what we think of as a movie today, even a short film today. You know, when I was talking to Jason Coolis, he was talking about short films he's made and a little bit about some of the ones that he's been involved with. And in, it just really makes you think about even those, even if you make a short, a 10 minute film today, there's a whole pre-production process, filming, post-production, release. How do you get people to see it? All that. I don't know. Yeah, it's impressive that people made so much stuff, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Still, you can't shake a stick at it. I mean, they had to develop their film and any editing that happened had to be done by physically splicing reels and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one more curious 3D connection. You were talking about some of Porter's innovations. Um, he actually directed the first ever... 3D film that used the red blue, you know, 1950s style 3D technology. What is that called? It's like analographic. I believe it's called anaglyph. Yeah, anaglyph. That's right. So that's a pretty cool 3D coming in hot here this episode. 
So the Great Train Robbery, it synthesized a lot of early ideas into a film that I think most people would say that the Great Train Robbery was like the first smash hit film, especially in the U.S. It like got screened all around the country and got newspaper articles written about it and stuff. I don't know if it was the first of anything. Like, I don't know if it was the first one for that technique you were talking about, Brian, but um, it had early examples of like a lot of techniques that were kind of being modernized around the 1900s. You had cross-cut editing, you had a close-up. There's a really famous shot in The Great Train Robbery where it zooms in on a bandit who's firing a gun. Um, It had early camera pans. It also had, like you mentioned, a vehicle-mounted camera right on the train. And it was also long for the time. I mean, it's over 10 minutes, at least in the version that the Library of Congress screens it at. So that's like almost a reel of film. You used to measure film in reels. I think it's about 12 minutes per reel. So that puts it at, at a full reel. Yeah. So basically, it's the same thing as Titanic. Bloated runtime, <laughs> milking those re-releases. Getting the, the profits, setting records. Yeah. Quick recap on this one. We start with a group of bandits. They break into a telegraph office where they arrange a stop for an incoming train and they kind of tie up the person working in the telegraph office. When the train comes to a stop there, they board the train. They kill a couple of the workers. By the way, also like simulated real violence. Shoot guns popping, people falling down like they're they're dead. Simulated real violence, yeah. And, and uh, they use some dynamite to break into vaults there get out some valuables they force passengers off the train and and rob them one guy tries to flee they kill him eventually that telegraph worker is discovered by this little girl meanwhile there's a local dance that's going on that gets a couple minutes of screenplay i always like when there's big dances in old movies they they hear about what happened they form this vigilante posse this is where we get the cross cut you have the bandits in the train and then you have the vigilante posse forming trying to chase down the bandits and but and eventually the posse gets them and then kills them and then you have the famous finale shot like i mentioned it's a close up of a a guy with a, a six gun firing it and smoke coming out as if he's shooting right at you at the screen but also like who is that guy where does this occur in the chronology of the film yeah so that's a, that's a very good point it doesn't make sense and actually Goodfellas. I noticed the most recent time I watched Goodfellas, it ends with this too. Like one of the very last shots of the film, I think it's like intercut with the final sequence is Joe Pesci, who's dead at that point, basically recreates this exact thing of shooting straight at a camera. And I also saw an interview with Scorsese talking about how he was directly quoting, visually quoting this 1903 film. Kind of like bringing it back to the original crime story, you know? That's interesting. You got to drop that in the Discord. Yeah. So a couple of thoughts on this one. We've mentioned Titanic a couple of times, and I do agree that this spiritually predecessor to Titanic, because it's all about the big spectacle. It's shot on location with real ass moving trains and gunfight, violence and dancing with a whole crowd. It's a kick for, for what it is, you know? But the things that I notice are just like they hadn't quite figured out how to do stuff. Like acting is so funny in these some of these old ones. Like when some of the people, they just kind of stand there and they like walk from spot to spot, like they're following instructions read on a loudspeaker and like have no interiority. And then other people like there's the dude who like runs away and then gets shot. He does the biggest. It's like a Looney Tunes pantomime overact. He like clutches his chest and kicks one foot up in the air and swirls around and falls flat on his back dead. And it's like the most, it's the goofiest thing that I've seen in a while. It's pretty good. Also striking just how violent it is. There's like eight deaths in this 12 minute movie. I wonder what rating it would get in 2022. Probably PG. (laughs) They're lax with violence nowadays. Any other thoughts on the Great Train Robbery, Brian, before we get to the meat and potatoes of the movie, of the episode? Not really. I'll just say, listeners, that if you want to check these out, they're a quick watch. Yeah. Double feature of Arrival of a Train and Great Train Robbery, you know, 15 minutes, you're done. That includes the time searching into Google, how do I watch a Great Train Robbery? Because they're public domain. 
and there's high quality copies on YouTube easily found. And in fact, you might even be able to find them on the Wikipedia pages for both of them. So, all right, on to the general, Brian, 1926, Buster Keaton movie. So we've done a Chaplin movie. The two titans of silent comedy were Chaplin and Buster Keaton. So, you know, they're often pitted as rivals with each other. I don't really know if they thought of each other as rivals in the time. I haven't heard too much about that, but definitely the two that you see referenced the most. How many, what, what Keaton works have you seen, Brian? So for Keaton, I have seen Sherlock Jr. And one called College. We watched that on the last day of high school in a class. And then for Gauntly, my public access TV series that was horror themed, I watched from 1921, a movie that he did called The Haunted House. Interesting. So that's what I've seen so far. I really like Sherlock Jr. That's a funny one. Yeah, I want to see that. Uh, what about you? What have you seen? I have not seen too much. So um, I actually just watched Our Hospitality less than a month ago. I'm going to write a review of it for thegoodsreviews.com. And because it's in the series of 1001 films to see before you die. And that's the next one that I've been watching this chronologically. And that's the next one that, that I'm on. That one is also based in the South and it also has a train based set piece, although it's very tame in comparison to what we have here in the general. Um, so I have not seen too much Keaton. So since you've seen a little more than me, I'll ask you, Brian, when you think of a Buster Keaton movie, what are some, what's the trademark of that? What does that mean? So Buster Keaton was nicknamed the Great Stone Face, and it's because he reacts with his eyes. He doesn't react with other parts of his face. His He has a very deadpan comedy style, like something will happen and his reaction will be this blank stare. And what it makes me think of is there's a meme lately called My Reaction to That Information, and it's kind of like an anti-meme or an anti-joke where it's just like, a random unexpressive face but i i looked around recently i was trying to see if anybody had made one that was my reaction to the information with either kuleshov which would be good <laughs> or buster keaton and i haven't seen either but i think both of them would do brisk business in the meanscape yeah and i heard recently that uh, rami malek is gonna do a buster keaton biopic I don't know if it's already production is done, but it's in the works at least. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because they both kind of have like widespread bug eyes. Like their face is a little bit too big for their head. I'm nodding. Yeah, they kind of their facial structures are kind of similar. Uh, Malik also did the Freddie Mercury biopic, right? Right. I think he won an Oscar for that or something. Yeah, I believe the very first episode of buzzed on movies is them talking about how much they hate the bohemian rhapsody biopic i've heard nothing but bad stuff about it despite its numerous oscar nominations but uh yeah um i i have to say i really enjoy this buster keaton style it's like when you compare it to for example i've seen maybe five chaplin movies and i love the tramp too but like it it feels a little more dated and like kind of over the top acting with his face and his gestures. And you're right. There's something about Keaton very understated that feels kind of more modern to me. It's like, it's not quite as uh, old school, even though you still have some of the old school gags like slapstick style. But I mean, obviously that's the basis for it, but um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the tramp is a clown figure, you know, actively going after the jokes and Buster Keaton is more of the straight man archetype. Yeah, I can see that. So this film, The General, this is obviously one of his feature length films. I think it clocks in at 76 minutes. It, it's pretty brisk. It might only be 72 minutes. Yeah, it's it's uh, not too long. He had done a couple of features before this. Our Hospitality was, I think, his second feature. And this was, I, I don't know how many there was in between that and this, but this was a few years later. This was his biggest budget ever. And so... This follows the perspective of the Confederates in the Civil War. And in fact, it is based off of a real historical event called the Great Locomotive Chase. 
uh, which I did not know anything about before researching this episode. Uh, but an interesting thing is he actually flipped the perspectives because in the, the real life version, it was the Confederates stealing a Union train. And as we're going to see here, it's a Union stealing a Confederate train. And the heroes are all Confederates. But apparently the justification for flipping it is like at that point in the culture, the Confederates were like typically depicted as the scrappy, sympathetic, big hearted underdogs, which obviously that kind of depiction has gone out of style at this point. In fact, it's based off of a memoir of a Union soldier. Yeah, I was reading some of those things in the Amazon factoid bar that I like to hype so much. Any other interesting tidbits on on the production of it, or are you going to sprinkle stuff in as we go? Yeah, I'll probably sprinkle it in. I, I didn't realize it was so fact-based. I didn't know too much about this one, other than it's very well regarded. There's a lot of people who seem to think of it as probably Keaton's best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on that note, uh, it is the highest ranking on the recent Sight and Sound poll that came out. I don't have the number written down, but I know it was his highest... And then on the They Shoot Pictures list, which I have in the past used as kind of an authoritative uh, aggregation of all of the, the critical best ever lists, it's ranked as number 39 greatest film ever made on that list. Wow. Have we ever done a movie that was that high? Um, this might be the highest. Uh, we did The Apartment, which was also way up there. I'm going to have to double check our records, but this might actually be the highest regarded one we've done. This film history class has really been hyping Billy Wilder, so I think we may be due for another Billy Wilder film. Okay, yeah, I would be down. One last tidbit on this. So we've had Gargus on. Gargus uh, writes about or has written about the films that have been selected for the Library of Congress National Film Registry, which I think of as the equivalent of the Hall of Fame in sports. You have the Hall of Fame, like once you get in there, You've like made it into a special class of highly regarded athletes. The The National Film Registry is like the Hall of Fame of American movies. This was an inaugural entry, one of the first 10 films when the National Film Registry first was created in 1989. And pretty much all 10 of those movies were, were heavy hitters. So it's an, an elite class, elite territory. So let's dive into the story. I've got it. I mean, it's a it's a pretty streamlined and straightforward story. But the way it opens is a train engineer named Johnny Gray. This is who Keaton plays. We learn that he loves two things. He loves his train, which is named the General. And he loves his lady friend, Annabelle Lee, the co-star of this film, played by Marion Mack, who I don't know anything about her but she does a good job in this movie. And we see in the beginning news about the, the war breaking out, you know, the, the civil war and Keaton tries to enlist for the Confederates, but he gets turned away at the enlistment place because the Confederate officers there decide that it's more important to have him running the trains, I guess. And I mean, of course it is. Yeah. The civil war constantly used trains. I don't know why that's not good enough. It's like he's a skilled professional in an industry that's vital to the war. Yeah. So he's not allowed to become a soldier. Annabelle hears about this and thinks that he's a, a coward. It's like a kind of miscommunication on it. And she says that she's not going to speak to him until he decides to enlist, which of course he can't do. We then jump forward a year into the war and... Annabelle's father, who we had seen in List, has been wounded and she needs to go visit him. And of course, she has to go by train to do that. But Union spies steal the general. And we learn that the spies have a plan to kind of destroy the tracks as they take this train back into Union territory. So what do we know about Johnny? We know that he loves his train. He loves his woman. He's got to go rescue his two loves in, in one one mission because she is a passenger on the train and is inadvertently a captive of this plot by the union spies. And so then kicks off what I would say is the promise of the premise of this film, which is like a 30 minute train chase scene. I mean, the notion of a train chase scene in some ways is almost kind of silly because you're just like going along a straight track. Yeah. It's like, what are you going to do? How are you going to stop the person that's in front of you? Uh, but this movie, I mean, I think it's 
fair to say that this movie really makes it work. So the way that, that Keaton has to chase after them is he's using a hand car and then he eventually he goes on other vehicles. He gets a he he gets a bike and he chases after him on a bike. And then uh, there's another army train that he he ends up using to try and chase after them, too. But this whole kind of long chase after the general makes up a solid half of the film, I would say. Yeah. At this point, I want to talk a little bit about how I watched this movie, which was on Amazon, but it was a colorized version and they had added sound effects to it attempting to sync up sound effects the like frequently yeah like the whole movie through they had like tried to recreate sound for it everything except people talking that's so weird so they had like vehicle sounds all throughout sometimes it worked okay like when he's running the handcart and then it like jumps the track at one point and falls down into a lake I laughed at that. The sound effects they used, it was effective. Okay. I probably would have laughed anyway, but it was a weird experiment. I've never seen a silent film treated that way before. But yeah, and like when he falls off the handlebars of the bike and busts his ass, that was funny too. I want to talk about uh, hand cars, Brian. Okay. So the, these are fascinating to me. So they're, I, I've definitely seen them in things before and I was trying to decide what... Is it just like Looney Tunes I've seen them in before? I don't know. But they're like, it's like a flat, small car with a seesaw type lever. And so you pump the lever and it goes on its own. And yeah, he gets a really great pratfall with them. The one that he's pushing here. How prevalent were these? What were they used for? How often were people having to manually pump themselves down a train track? Do you have any insight on on uh, hand cars for me, Brian? I mean, I've seen a lot of them. Basically, anything that focuses on a train in an old-timey setting long enough, you're going to see hand cars. Like, Blazing Saddles has hand car scenes. As far as what exactly they were used for, I'm not sure. We should look that up. Maybe, like, going out to repair the tracks or something? Yeah, it's it's some some role in maintenance. You know, it's like the little trucks that drive around on the airport tarmac. Okay. But when it would be most useful i'm not exactly sure yeah but yeah definitely a staid presence in cartoons and things it's just kind of a funny visual right of a hand operated vehicle on a railroad track you gotta exaggeratedly pump up and down with the handlebars imagine me pumping my arms up and down right now like i don't know if they ever used one in the great race but that's kind of the environment I imagine it like a yeah. silent film melodrama villain is going to have to use a hand car. Right. So I think this sequence here when he's chasing after them, in particular, when he gets his a different train to start chasing after the general, we get some of like the most memorable stunts from this film. And this is another thing that Keaton was really known for was doing all his own stunts. Right, and like really dangerous stunts. Yeah, in Sherlock Jr., he's got another train scene where he falls off a water tower. And the legend, at least, is that he broke his back doing that. And he never knew until like 40 years later when he was getting x-rayed. They're like, huh, your back's broken. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it had like, you know, healed over the years. That's crazy. They could tell that it's, at some point he had broken it. Wow. The... The famous one, I think the, the one that you see quoted most often or referenced most often is he's riding on the front of the steam engine and there are these big blocks that uh, I think what they are are uh, railroad ties. So they're like the parts of a railroad and they're like out on the railroad and he has to like pick them up. So he has to pick up one and then use it to knock over another and I, in my head, this was always him like building a, a railroad as he was going. Obviously, you couldn't build a railroad as you were going, but it kind of has the gist of that. Like he's trying to maintain the the track in front of him as the train is going. It's a, it's a really incredible stunt. Yeah. And in the sidebar, it said that because the way these ties are, they're like lying diagonal on the tracks. So it's made to like derail the train if the train hits that because it'll like tweak it diagonally up off the tracks and 
yeah, Keaton's got to, like, knock these things out of the way. And if he doesn't, like, if he d- doesn't do it right, the train is still going to be moving and it could just, like, derail. And that's really dangerous. Right. There's also a big cannon gag. I, I can't imagine it was real gunpowder, but he's, like, trying to get the, the cannon loaded with gunpowder and he, like, falls in the cannon himself. It's pretty good. I have a I have a brief rant on old-timey stunts. I feel like I wish... I could see them without having seen modern movies. Like there's this D.W. Griffith movie called Way Down East that I saw when I, in my watching of 1001 films to see before you die in chronological order. And this has like a full on glacier rescue. So a character gets captured and dropped on like this big ice sheet on a river and the hero has to go like slide out onto the glacier rescue her as like ice chunks are kind of flowing near them, like jump from chunk to chunk. And I felt like, I don't know, desensitized. I was like this, I'm sure that this was really dangerous and impressive. And like, this is what the movie is most famous for, but it just looked like a dude hopping on things. Like it wasn't impressive at all. So the fact that like this one really did get my like heart pumping a little bit with some of the stunts, a couple of them was to me, a testament to like how impressive these stunts actually were because you know, my my desensitized brain doesn't always react the way that it should to these uh, these these old time silent movie stunts. There's one where the train's actually moving and like a car separates from another car and he has to like reach and grab it and like pull it and reconnect it. That one really got me. But there was another one where like one engine is like going backwards on the train and then another train comes up really fast behind it and then it like branches off like it hits a switch and like swerves around the train that was going backwards and that looked super dangerous (laughs) like they looked like they were about to obliterate each other yeah also it gets a little confusing because so the general is a confederate train and it's part of their railroad. And it says like MPRR or something on the side of it. And then that gets stolen by the Union guys. So they're driving in the train that says MPRR. And then Keaton commandeers another train from that same railroad. So his train that he's in also says MPRR. And so these two trains are chasing each other. But it says the same thing on the side of the train. So I found that a little confusing. And then later on, there's like more Union guys in a train that has like a U-R-R on the side. And then I could tell them apart a little better. But yeah, well, there is one like the one that he commandeers chasing after the general is called the Texas. And so the steam engine in front of that has the word Texas on it, which is how I could tell it was that one. Right, but you can only really see that when it's like close up that they have these little name placards, but like the railroad logo is bigger. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. One thing I really admired about this from a train month perspective is that it really you get all angles of the train. You get it from on the train. You get it from behind the train. You get it facing towards the train coming towards you. You get it facing forward as if you're a person riding the train and just like a wide variety of angles and you get to see stunts. Some of the stunts involve like the wheels. So it's like down low, a lot of good train action in here. And then you're just, it's train moment after moment. Cause this whole midsection is all on a series of vehicles, mostly a train. Right. And for the most part, they're just driving the locomotives. So they're like a lot more mobile than I typically think of a train being, including, as I mentioned, there's like extended periods where they're backing up. I actually didn't even realize that a train could back up. I didn't know that was something they could do, but it makes sense. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of a lot of good train action in this for sure. And you're right, mostly like the steam engines, the the fronts of them. Yeah, a lot of hopping in, stopping, starting, falling off the rails. Yeah, almost like a car. Yeah. So eventually, Keaton catches up with the the general, but at this point, he's in Union territory, so he like has to go hide and he overhears a plan of a union surprise attack on the Confederates. And in particular, there's a very specific bridge that, that is important to this. And Keaton eventually frees Annabelle. The way that he does it is he disguises himself as a union soldier and he, he finds Annabelle and he like throws her in the sack 
and I guess it's like supposed to be laundry or uniforms or something, but like all these soldiers are carrying bags of stuff. He's carrying around this sack with a woman in it and he kind of like tosses her. He has to toss her somewhere and it's just kind of a funny gag. Yeah, and then everybody else is piling their bags on top of his bag. And he's like looking back all panicked. It's pretty good. But he he eventually uh, is able to free her and they, they get back into Confederate territory and he tells them of the surprise attack that's coming. So they, they prep for it. And just as they're getting ready to attack, they blow up that one bridge that had been very important to the, the plot of the surprise attack. And so we get a full on bridge collapsing here. Very real. I don't know if they use miniatures for this. They didn't. Really? So it's full size? So, yeah, this is a good story. So they sent the train across. They're like, oh, don't worry. It's not burning that much. You could probably get over. And then the trestle collapses and the train goes down in the river. And they use like a real period train for this. And then once it was in the river, they left it there. And until the 40s, it was there at the bottom of the river and they used it for like, I don't know if this was associated with Universal, but whatever studio made the movie, they had like a backlot tour and they would take you out and you could see the train at the bottom of the river. Wow. <laughs> um, but then they scrapped it in World War Two to use the metal. Oh, uh, okay. So they like dredged it up and recycled some of the iron or whatever goes into a train. That's a bummer. Yeah, this was supposedly a very expensive movie, and I think this is where you most see it. Yeah, definitely very, very cool, very impressive uh, to see an actual train, or excuse me, an actual bridge collapsing down in like a single shot too, you know? Like you, you had to get that one right. I don't think that's one that you're going to do multiple takes on. <laughs> so... There's a gag where they're like looking at him because he's remember he had to pretend to be a Union soldier and he's still wearing the, the Union uniform. But it's like a moment of honor. They're like, take off that uniform and put on this one. You can now enlist, which, OK, I mean, he's still a, like a useful engineer. I don't know what changed that made it so that he can be. Yeah, exactly. You're going to go and be like a no account private. It's like, how much money are you going to make? Uh, you're a trained professional that they need for the war effort. Why not just be a train guy? Maybe it would have been better if he had like accepted the nobility of being an engineer. And then his lady friend had also come to admire that too. You know, like for, for what it's worth, I think the uniform that they give him, I think the general refers to him as a Lieutenant. So mm. I think he's not just enlisted. I think he has been made an officer. Okay. Which I am not entirely sure if that's how that works, but I don't know entirely yeah. military protocol. But he seems to be in a position that he's happy with. And then the, the final gag is, you know, now that he's a soldier, Annabelle will talk to him. She probably would have anyways. He saved her life. But they they get together and there's a closing gag where he's trying to kiss her. But then soldiers keep coming by. Now he's a soldier. He's got to salute a soldier every time they come by. And they're like coming by like an ants in the line. So he keeps reaching down to kiss her. But oh, wait, no, here comes another soldier. Got to salute. It's, it's pretty funny. So that's how the movie ends. The General, 1926. So, Brian, any thoughts, any reactions? Good things, not so good things. One thing I was thinking about was that this was, what, like 60 years after the Civil War. So there were people still alive who would have remembered the Civil War at this point. Oh, you could like hire consultants. Like, oh, I'll tell you what it was like. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a pretty effective production. I mean, it's trains all the way through, so definitely a good train month pick. Yeah, for sure. What about you? What are some of your thoughts as we head into the station to rate this thing? Well, a couple of things. One is the stunts really are crazy impressive and like just really cool to watch and very funny. He does like he's so good at like the double take. He doesn't do too exaggerated, but like when he like reacts, he sees something unexpected he has just the right amount of like response to that. He's like, Ooh, what? There's one particular one that made me laugh really hard when the train gets stuck and he's like throwing dirt clods to like, I guess, increase the, the friction. It's like a, you know, an anti-lock brake type thing. Like you need to get friction with the ground to get it going. Uh, what is it in, uh, my cousin Vinny pause attraction. Right. But anyways, uh, 
where he he's like trying to get the dirt clods there and then he's like he reaches down to get up a particular dirt clod it takes him a few seconds but the train has started moving and he lifts it up and he's like has the dirt clod ready to drop it and he's like where'd it go and he does this nice little double take that made me laugh and then he has to run and chase after it, which is pretty funny yep there's another part that's a similar setup but like the union guys that he's chasing they like uncouple a car that comes to a stop on the tracks to slow him down and he crashes into that and is pushing that car with his cow catcher and so he's pushing that along and then he goes into the back of the train to get something or do something uh, but while he's back there the car that he's pushing like hits a switch or something and heads off on its own and falls off the tracks and so then when he comes back out forward again there's no longer any car that he's pushing and it's just gone and he does that yeah same deadpan reaction pretty good yeah another thing i wanted to say here is that most silent comedies i've seen are like sketches that are loosely tied together so there's a plot but it's still like episodes and sometimes you even have them only barely related to the plot. It's like they'll find some reason that, oh, he needs to be eating lunch right now or something like that. And it really has nothing to do with going on, but it's just like a, a chance to do a bit of comedy. This one was really impressive. And a, a couple of reviews I've read about it cited this as one of the reasons that it's often viewed as Keaton's best is like every single bit of slapstick comedy really falls in line with the story. And so it doesn't feel too jokey to me or, or gaggy or sketchy or whatever, because pretty much everything that happens, it's still got that same slapstick cadence to it, but it's kind of a part of this story. So I think that's kind of cool. One not so good thing for me. So this comes on the tales of our hospitality. And I think this is a better movie, better made movie and all that. But our hospitality has some satire of southern propriety and nobility it's like got the mark twain thing where it's making fun of some of the hypocrisy of some of the people in the civil war era south or shortly after civil war era south and um so i was a little surprised that the general had the confederates just as the straight-faced heroes no kind of jokes at the expense of a southern gentleman or anything like that i was kind of missing an element of that but i guess the focus is all on the action so I don't know how exactly that could have fit in. It's kind of hard to be too sympathetic with the, the Confederates, the rebels. Right. I would recommend uh, Sherlock Jr. That's my favorite of his. That's the first one that I saw. In that, he's a movie projectionist for work. And so there's a lot of like meta cinema stuff. And he has a dream where he goes inside a movie, like walks up on the stage and goes through the screen. And then like the film is like, editing around him like anytime that there's a cut like the scene will change and he'll like fall off a bench into suddenly there's a snow drift and he'll fall into the snow like in between the scenes it's pretty cool really well put together i gotta see that and there's a bit a little hard to explain but it's it's just all about how like we watch movies to understand how to act in our lives. It's like, well, I saw this in a movie, so you know, it's what did Nick, what does um, Jack say in the Titanic? I saw that once in a Nickelodeon, and I've always wanted to try it. <laughs> when he kisses her on the hand. Oh yeah. It's like he's taking advice from the movies that he's watching to know how to court his girlfriend. So one last thing before we rate Brian, ultimate train movie check in. I know you said you're gonna wait to the end of the month. Since I've been given a running, ta running tally, I'll go ahead and say General's got the new title for me. It's the trainiest movie I've seen. Ultimate train movie. Maybe not quite as symbolically used as in Brief Encounter, but it's just so train-centric. And the traininess itself is the point. The love of the train, the geometry of the train, the interaction between the trains. Ultimate train movie for me thus far. Yeah. Sheer train concentrate is off the charts here. And for me, both Train to Busan and this one are trainier than Brief Encounter, where you've got multiple trains. It's all about, you know, like start to finish being on the train, whereas Brief Encounter, it was a lot of what was happening at the train station, but less less so on the train itself. Okay. Um, so I guess Busan has the horror elements as well as a huge part of it. This is really... I, yeah, I think you're right that this is the trainiest. 
So I'm glad that you put it on the table here because I was worried that we might not get to it. Well, I'm glad that we did. And so, Brian, I think it's time to rate unless you have anything else you want to throw out there. All right, let's do it. So Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward a Good, which is an eight out of eight. So Brian is the general good. So I'm a little bummed because I think this is like my fourth or fifth time in a row that I've given this rating, but I think this is a very good movie, Dan. I'm going to give this a six on our eight point scale. Uh, Some of that is I like it at least as much as the circus with Charlie Chaplin, which I also gave a six to that one was buoyed by the fact that I laughed at the monkey gags, but this is a much more cohesive product Like, from beginning to end, as you said, it's got one consistent narrative, which is not super common for silent film comedies. And, yeah, it was just put together with a clear vision and with a budget behind it. And it's train tricks all along the way. Train action. Tricks on tracks. (laughs) So what do you think, Dan? I like that. Tricks on tracks. Like this possible episode title. Yeah, I'm going to give this one a seven and exceptionally good. I think it is the most cohesive and exciting silent comedy that I've seen. One of the funnier ones too. I mean, I've, I've liked several others. It's not the jokiest one, but it is extraordinarily well put together. The gags are really well constructed. Great story, incredible train action, everything you just said, everything we've been saying, just a terrifically made film. It's like a, a, filmmaker at the peak of his powers like keaton is not just funny but it's really well directed and like just really interesting visually so many different angles like i was saying even stuff like when he's rescuing the the lady the damsel in distress and it's like raining and it's kind of pretty when it's raining it's like it's got some visual sense on like how to make all this look nice and how to have it all fit together and man i just really get a kick out of the way that he reacts to stuff he's just a very very funny an enjoyable screen presence. By the way, we didn't mention real life bear in this one, Brian. Do you remember the bear? Oh man. That's pretty cool. I know that he had his dad play one of the union generals. Oh really? So it's like a, a family affair. <laughs> yeah. And another thing that was kind of cool was it takes you out of at least seemingly the studio environment. Like, you're outside, you know, it's this one locomotive going through the woods. It really makes you feel like you're out in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely. Completely agree. Yeah, you know what? I mean, I've doled out a bunch of sixes lately. I'm trying to think what I probably should have given a seven to. Maybe Footnote. Footnote was pretty unique. We'll think about these things when we get to whatever our next spectacular is. But, I mean, it's a good one. I recommend it. Yeah. This was in- enjoyable. Check out The General. Yeah, so, and I will say also for me, I haven't seen enough silent comedies and silent movies in general to be fully calibrated on it. I'm open to just straight up calling this a masterpiece someday, but I'm going to start with a seven and and maybe see if that grows through the years. So, but that that wraps our discussion of the general. Is it, Brian, is it worth throwing ratings on our uh, other two movies of the day? Oh, man. Is that even possible? Maybe. Sure, why not? All right. Let's do it. Um, you want me to go first again? Sure. Arrival at a, what is it? Arrival of a train. Yeah. Arrival of a train. So 1896. I mean, it's like, do you rate it as a part of its time? Can you only hold it up against films that existed up to that point? Because in, in that case, it's probably one of the best, but it's a low effort film. I'm going to give this one a three out of eight. Okay. Yeah. And maybe that's a little generous. It was a good idea, and it was well executed. I mean, the train arrives. <laughs> the title doesn't lie. So what do you give that one, Dan? Yeah, I've, I've wrestled a lot with how do you rate very early pieces of cinema, because there's not really a good answer. So my default, what I've kind of done when I've rated very old movies, like I'm talking pre-feature and even very early features, is... My default rating for like something that is interesting to watch, but isn't really something that holds up 
like something you like go out of your way to watch except for its hist- historical curiosity like the general has clearly gotten past that like that you're actively watching the general because you like it you're watching an 1896 film because you're curious what an 1896 film is you know my default rating for that is good ish that's a four out of eight I'm almost tempted to bump this one up to a five just because it's train and I like the angle of the train coming in. I'm going to stick with a four for now on that one, though. So I'm going to say it's good ish. Okay. And then the great train robbery, 1903, Brian. This one's tough. It's been a while since I watched it. I do remember that it's got a lot of moving parts, though, for a 1903 movie, which was for reference, like right about the same time as Journey to the Moon. I'm tempted to give it a seven, but how much of that is that I don't want to just keep doling out sixes like flintstones vitamins um i'll say a seven. Oh wow for great train robbery you're in on the great train robbery pretty innovative I'll, i'd give an eight to trip to the moon oh man yeah well maybe we talk about that someday maybe after i come back from paris and get to visit the Melies museum i am going to give the great train robbery a five because unlike arrival of a train this one, it's at least there where you could watch it just for the sake of enjoyment. And it's got a lot of the fun spectacle stuff going on. It's still not fully formed cinema. It's prototype cinema, uh, but it's enjoyable for what it is. And I think whereas like old actualities, you kind of just watch from a fascination factor. I think this one I could recommend to anyone, even with caveats like, hey, it's a 1903 thing. They were still figuring out movies, but it's kind of fun to watch this one. It's kind of interesting. There's murders and heists and trains driving around. So for me, I'm going to give it a five. That's a good. So there we go. Cool. We keep on rolling, Brian. What are we going to be watching in our fourth week of train month next week? That's right. Even though February is a short month, we got a little more train month ahead. And my second pick of the season is going to be one that I don't think we will be giving out sevens to <laughs> from its reputation. But it's certainly an extremely trainy film. This is Thomas and the Magic Railroad, Dan. The Thomas the Tank Engine feature film from 2000. Thomas and the Magic Railroad. Wow. Yes, it's got Alec Baldwin as Mr. Conductor. Wow. Man, Star. okay. Peter Fonda? Wow. All right, well, this will be interesting. This will be informative. I've never seen it. I remember when it came out. Never been the biggest Thomas fan, but we are going to talk Thomas and his fandom. I have a little bit of Thomas thoughts. I'll save them for next week. I'm looking forward to talking about it, Brian. Thought we couldn't pass him over. Yeah. The most iconic anthropomorphic train <laughs> in American and worldwide, in fact, pop culture, because he originated in the United Kingdom. Huh. I guess that's, you know, a lot of the milestones I was talking about were all in England first railroad and the first underground railroad were both in London. So I guess it's, I don't know if it's technically the birthplace of all trains, but it's certainly the epicenter of, of early train history. So I guess it makes sense that you have a lot of train culture coming out of there. Yep. I'm looking forward to checking it out. You know, not a milestone in film history next week, but <laughs> one I'm looking forward to checking out. Maybe in toddler film history. True. All right, Brian, this was really fun. Thanks for talking with me about a wide variety of films and topics today and i look forward to speaking with you next week yeah thanks for joining me and thank you listeners join us again 